This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Richard Lawson is off on vacation this week, hopefully not watching movies or thinking about them and just floating in a pool somewhere. He'll be back eventually. Um, But this week we have a lot to talk about and a great show. We have an interview that Mike did with Ben Stiller, who directed the Showtime series Escape at Dannemora and reunited with Patricia Arquette and kind of made this huge splash in prestige TV. So Mike will talk a little bit more about that interview later. And then we have the next installment of the Little Gold Men Book Club. Joanna and I will be talking about How to Build a Girl, the novel by Caitlin Moran. Um, But first, just very brief festival season news. Toronto announced another wave of films that are going to be in their galas and special presentations, which is typically where you see most of the Oscar buzzy titles. Um, The one like sentimental favorite that I saw in there was The Aeronauts, a.k.a. the Eddie Redmayne, Felicity Jones hot air balloon movie. Um, (laughs) And then, Joanna, I think we're both excited to see Lucy and the sky on there. Can you tell us why? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a feature film debut, I believe, from Noah Hawley, who did the TV series Fargo, as well as Legion. Uh, stars Natalie Portman, John Hamm, Dan Stevens. And it's based on the true story, loosely based, I think, on the true story of the female astronaut who got romantically entangled and did a very infamous like sort of cross-country drive about it. But if you watch the trailer for the film... Like uh, this is not uh, this is not any kind of biopic or anything like that. It's very dreamy, very surreal, which is very Noah Hawley. So I'm really excited to see what he does in that space. It's not a sequel to Yesterday. It's not another. <laughs> not, not as far as I know. They find Beatles songs in space. Natalie Portman is back. the only one who remembers the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's intriguing to see this coming into Toronto a year after Vox Lux, which kind of popped up at the last minute um, and was pretty polarizing. Mike, I can't remember if you saw it there, but people tended to either really love it or really hate it. Uh, and I wonder if this might do a similar thing with another, another Natalie Portman performance. I uh, Yeah, I did not see it there. But yes, that was it was kind of up or down. And I and then maybe this is Natalie's thing. She's this is her strategy. She's like, I like to just drop a last minute movie on the Toronto people. I don't know why you would do that, but <laughs> I mean. Uh, they, you know, they just announced the even the release date of this film. And my my sense from talking to Noah about like his work on Legion is he had just a lot of balls in the air. You know, he's like he's also writing Fargo, finishing Legion and editing this all at the same time. So I think the question was like, will this even be done in time for Toronto? And they made it. Looks like they made it. Congratulations. So. To Plus, it's it's Fox Searchlight. So I don't know. You know, I don't know. 
what's going on with Fox Searchlight this season. That's a, that's a big question we want to keep our eye on, right? Yeah. And speaking of actresses who inspire uh, intense feelings, make interesting choices, the uh, Gene Seberg biopic starring Kristen Stewart called Seberg is going to be at Toronto. It's going to be at Venice as well, so Richard will get to see it first. But uh, Kristen Stewart, our most recent cover star, she's also got Charlie's Angels out this fall. It's going to be a really interesting season for Kristen Stewart, so I'm excited to get a chance to see that. The Kristen Stewart... Uh, magazine cover is just arriving in the mail for our subscribers and I've had a bunch of them send me photos of like the copy in their house and they don't usually do that and I'm like all right Kristen has arrived wow. houses. it's a really She's good here. cover I mean not to so pat good. ourselves our colleagues yeah. on the back but this is this is a good one yeah mine just it came is. too it's nice I enjoyed someone on Twitter who pointed out that she is dressed, and I think this is a compliment, but exactly the way that Roman Polanski is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like the velvet jacket and the like frilly collar. Uh, it's and she looks so stylish, and it is it makes it's an interesting point about how fashion trends come and go, and maybe we'll all be dressing like we're in the late sixties before too long. So, Joanna, before we start the book club segment, uh, we have a breaking news: the Little Women trailer is finally here. I don't know. I just kind of sat and watched it with a dumb grin on my face. Do you have critical thoughts on the Little Women trailer? <laughs> yeah, I watched it that way once and then again with notes. <laughs> um, so, well, the first thing that struck me was like how much we talked about this last week at the book club, like how uh, adult Amy is so underdeveloped in so many filmic adaptations and mm-hmm. how much in this trailer alone we see of adult Amy as like uh, not just like, you know, better than she was as a kid, but like a woman with ambition who wants to be an artist and all of her like artistic endeavors and also how they seem to be setting up, you know, you see her with this other suitor that she has in Europe who's in the book. And so setting up Lori as like, maybe not like the rich boy, she has other rich boy choices. So it's not like, Oh, she just married the rich boy. It's like she married this, the person that she like actually loved, you know, like setting up that choice to make it so much more like an active decision for Amy. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's very Amy and Joe heavy who are kind of the most active characters in the book, I think. Like Meg mm-hmm. is in there as kind of a, you know, you see Emma Watson, she's a big star, and then you really barely see Beth, which seems kind of smart to me for the tone of the trailer. Like it's very lively. You've got a lot of people yeah. like running around and hair yeah. flying everywhere. It's, it's like, it's very much saying like, this is a period movie, but it's not going to be like a bunch of stuffy like scenes of people sitting in rooms, which I think is, is important for people who might not automatically be sold. Yeah, that goofy shot of them sort of like jumping up and down, uh, Lori and Joe jumping sort of up and down at the end of their dance outside the ball Yeah, uh, when they first meet is like borderline anachronistic, but like not quite there. And it's just well, very cute. But um, you do you yeah. do get a lot from the two of them being so kind of like bucking the trends of the time. Like I think you can get away with a lot of Joe and Lori yeah. being like, oh, to hell with this like fancy dance. We'll go dance in a closet together, which is what they do in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like something that I... I love about this. Like, first of all, like count how many times someone, a woman in the trailer says, I want, you Mm. know what I mean? It's like so much about ambition. It's just so much about like Mm -hmm. what Joe wants and needs, what Amy wants and needs. She like, there are two, I think I want moments for Amy of like, she, I think she says, yeah, I want to be great or nothing, you know? And, and, um, and it's all this sort of stuff. But there's also, um, something else we talked about in the book club is how the book itself has so much, love and respect for all four sisters, all different kinds of femininity, right? And that's in this trailer too immediately where you've got the sequence of, you know, Joe doesn't want Meg to get married and Meg is like, just because what I want is different from yours doesn't make it less, you know? Yeah. And so oh, this, yeah. this reframing of like Meg who, you know, people write off as this like domestic bore and she's just like, you know, I, I want to 
I want to be married. I want to, I want to like, this is what I want. Oh and man, like, and her wedding yeah. looks so gorgeous. Like that one <laughs> shot of her like out and outside with like wild hair and like a flower yeah. crown. Like again, I have no idea how period appropriate that is, but I love it. We also get a shot of like a Marmy and Joe talk, which is some of my favorite stuff in the books where Marmy is just talking to Joe. We talked about like specifically the talk she has about the temper. And I think she says something about like some wills are too strong to bend or something like that, you know, so like the mothering of Marmy and the one-on-one and the intimacy of it. And this is obviously something that Greta Gerwig, I mean, it's a more troubled mother-daughter relationship in Lady Bird, but this is something that Greta Gerwig is obviously like very intensely interested in, which is the passing of like wisdom from mother to daughter and stuff like that yeah uh can we talk about tracy letts popping up as uh as like an editor character who i don't i know that like she has an editor but i don't remember ever like this person ever having lines but it's such this great meta moment in the beginning and the end of the trailer where he's asking her to write about like who they all get married to and then at the end she kind of rolls her eyes at it um it's kind of like burn after reading where you get to the end and jk simmons is like what did we learn from this but I, i don't know i can see it working within the tone of this as the trailer depicts it yeah, I, I, you're right. This is a very meta moment, like something we talked about also last week. Basically, like, listen to our discussion. It was great. <laughs> um, but something we talked about also last week is how Joe March is, or, or how Louisa May Alcott was sort of bullied into giving Joe a husband Yeah. Um, at the end of Little Women, how she, like, kind of wanted Joe to not get married, and how her editor sort of pushed her to that. So, like, the, the editor is doing the same thing for, for Joe, where he's like, okay, make sure she's married. Like, you can make Joe spirited and willful or whatever, but make sure she's married in the end. Yeah. It, it does make you wonder what they're going to... When we we see there's casting for Professor Bear in the in the cast, but it, it makes yeah. me wonder if they're going to to fiddle with that a little bit. Or at least, like, have her keep her writing career even after she gets married. Yeah, that would be great. Have a school for boys and a writing career. Lean in, Joe. Have it all. <laughs> um, the... Uh, <laughs> The other meta moment I think is is the the movie calls Meg out as as an actress and like Meg I think in the book is the um, like the best performer of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, Louisa May Alcott's real life sister she based Meg on actually was an actress. So like this idea of giving the girls all of them sort of equal artistic pursuits, painting, acting, writing uh, for Beth it's music you know, is a way that I think Greta Gerwig has found to just really give them all some kind of artistic expression uh, for who they are, which is just fabulous. I'm yeah. so excited. It's I know. It's going to be so good. I mean, Timothy Chalamet as Laurie is, I think, everything that we talked about him being. Yeah. Uh, and just seeing him, like, he and uh, Sersha have such great chemistry, which I think even Greta Gerwig talked about in the in the feature we did in the the movie and just seeing them together as Joe and Laurie, like they have the big Joe and Laurie proposal scene in the trailer, which is, I mean, I guess you can't really spoil little women, but uh, that's such a pivotal scene. And it's interesting that they wanted to show that off so early. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, I feel like that's such a smart move where it's like, okay, there's going to be things in this movie you don't recognize as little women. Like look how much Amy March there is, which mm-hmm. like maybe people who only know the 94 film version are not expecting that. Uh, who is this editor character? Like what is this stuff that, you know, we're unused to seeing, but don't worry. There's like stuff you very much recognize, like the proposal scene with the same language from the books as in the movies. Like yeah. it's here too. Like this is the little woman you recognize, but also we have new things to say. I'm just so, I mean, of course I trusted Greta Gerwig to do this, but like, I'm so impressed. Just the Amy stuff in this trailer alone makes me so impressed. It makes me feel like she understood. She better understood what Louisa May Alcott was trying to do in terms of like, 
show love for many different kinds of women mm-hmm. um, because I think it is easy to do a good Joe and it's harder to do a good Amy or even a good Beth. And we'll see sort of, as you say, Beth is sort of just in the background a bit in here, but um, it's so much harder to do a good Amy. And I think that that's the, like Greta Gerwig's like challenge fucking accepted, you know? So um, I'm really excited. Yeah. Oh my God. Little women bring it now. We have so many like fall movies to see before we finally see little women at Christmas, but I'm ready. Um, I'm, I, I'm impatient. (laughs) (laughs) Someone show me this movie. I need to see it. (laughs) Well, we'd like to welcome you to the next installment of our little gold men book club. Joanna, I think I speak for both of us when I say this has been incredibly fun way to spend August. And I've loved how many people responded to us about little women already. I know I've like, I've been amazed that people uh, it's, it's, it's just fills my heart with joy. How many people <laughs> wanted to listen to us talk about books and are reading themselves this summer. So, um, yeah, this is like hot, hot book girl summer, uh, over here at <laughs> little gold men. <laughs> uh, well, I like the idea that we call it girl summer because we have another book about a young woman is called how to build a girl. It's by Caitlin Moran, who is a columnist, uh, in the UK. She kind of became famous for, you know, writing for newspapers and then she wrote this book called How to Be a Woman and then followed it up with this novel. It was her first novel that she published. It's a coming of age story. I definitely didn't think when I decided to do this after Little Women about the fact that it start it's about a teenage girl named Joe who wants to be a writer. <laughs> I did not right. make that connection at all. Uh, and it contains uh, a few references to Little Women like she uh, the main character Johanna Morgan uh, is a voracious reader and she talks about like wanting to make money to support her family the way that Joe March does. I don't know. I'm talking a lot. Uh, Joanna, do you want to do the, the brief rundown of what this book's about? For I, I feel like fewer people will have read this than Little Women. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so it's it's quasi autobiographical, right? It's based on Catelyn Warren's like own uh, upbringing. Okay, is it Catelyn? Is that a Britishism that I don't know? I think it might be, but okay. it might Oof. be Catelyn, Catelyn Moran, Caitlin Moran. I don't know. It's I, I also am worried I'm pronouncing it a little Irish. Anyway, she's not Irish. <laughs> she's from the Midlands, Wolverhampton, and it's about um, her family which grew up uh, very impoverished and on welfare. Um, and her father is this like frustrated musician and uh, she has a talent for writing and she basically sort of writes her way out uh, Hamilton style uh, and, and gets a gig as a rock critic at the tender age of, I think it's 17. She's very young. Yeah. And she sort of lives this like wild rock and roll rock critic lifestyle for a bit. Um, and then has comes to a realization about, the extreme she was going to and trying to escape her life and how to maybe try to live her her life a bit more comfortably in herself while still having these great adventures. Um, there's a few figures that are really um, compelling in the book that I'm excited to see on the screen. One is her brother, Chrissy, um, who's sort of this great, you know, support for her, the, the Meg to her Joe March, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then there's this great figure called John Kite, who is a, you know, a rock and roller who she has this connection with, who will be played by Alfie Allen of Game of Thrones. Uh, We should also mention that Beanie Feldstein will be playing uh, the character of Johanna Morgan. And um, this book engages in Catelyn Warren's own upbringing as someone who was like 
felt overweight and awkward and you know it's it's done um as you say here in our notes katie it's done like delicately but unflinchingly it's just sort of like this is a true depiction of someone who grew up feeling like she didn't fit in for a number of reasons one of which is like how she looked and the other is this this question of poverty and it's not like whimsical poverty it's like we don't know how we're gonna eat kind of poverty you know and i feel like yeah books like that like um books by like Frank McCourt, like Angel's Ashes or Dorothy Allison books like Bastard of Carolina, like these depictions of, you know, the, the kind of poverty you don't often see or you don't often understand the realities of. It adds a really interesting component to this. And because it's autobiographical, it just feels like so completely authentic. And, and uh, you know, the author has talked herself about how infrequently she's seen stories about the way in which she grew up this level of poverty and how she mm-hmm. feels like lucky and responsible to be in a position where she can shine a light on that for, for people. So, yeah, I mean, we should mention that this movie is going to be at the Toronto film festival. It's mm-hmm. uh, directed by a director whose name I'm going to butcher is Koki Giroik. Uh, it's Gedroich. Oh and my the only reason, God. the only reason I know that is because her younger sister, Mel, is one of the co-hosts on The Great British Bake Off. So wow. God, I love... Melga Droich's older sister, who actually has, like, a crazy lot, like, that, like, Cookie is, like, her cute nickname, but she's, like, a lady. She's, like, a, she's got a whole long title. It's a whole thing. Anyway. Wow. So. Yeah. And yeah. she has, uh, she's done directing for television, including uh, Harlots and Penny Dreadful. She's got two features that she did, oh, okay. but like the last one was in, I think, the late 90s. Yeah, she did Stella Does Tricks in 1996 and Women Talking Dirty in 1999. Women Talking Dirty is um, Helena Bonham Carter and Gina McKee. It's a, I really, I really like that film. And then, and then she just like didn't do films for two decades. Uh, and here she is. Yeah. Back, back in the saddle. Um, and it's unclear who might distribute this film in the U.S. and when we might see it. So it's very possible to be one of those movies that premieres at Toronto and then doesn't open till next year. It's like it may or may not be an automatic awardsy thing, but then we would have said that about Lady Bird. So you never write anything off. And anyway, just so people know, it's I don't know when you'll be able to see it, unlike Little Women, which has a set release date. Can I read you Koki Gedroich's full name? <laughs> yes. It's Mary Rose Helen Gedroich comma lady bauer hyphen smith and smith is with a y so um yeah it's a beautiful it's a beautiful situation i i want to read some interviews with her and uh caitlin moran just talking about british class and like when you (laughs) when you come with a name like that and then make a movie about someone from wolverhampton like what uh what you have to learn exactly exactly um yeah so i i loved this book like i um, when did you read it so, okay, <laughs> here's the full story. I actually read part of it when it first came out, uh, which was in 2014, because I had to uh, interview Catelyn Moran for uh, VanityFair.com. Oh. And I didn't have time to read the whole thing, so I read part of it, and I really liked it, but then I just never picked up and finished it. So I was really glad that we like had, had this excuse to finish it. But I have, like... Reading it, I realized uh, I realized some personal things. Am I allowed to share personal things in, in, I, in book club, Katie? I think that's what books are all about. Excellent. I realized that when I was preparing for this interview that I did, I watched a bunch of like videos, uh, which is something that I do, you know, because there's so many interviews that exist out there with these great, these 
fine smart folks and you don't want to ask them the same question they've been asked a million times and so I often just watch these interviews to sort of make sure that I'm not retreading territory anyway I watched a bunch of interviews with her where she talked about because uh, she is uh, you know if you if you've never seen her I mean she's incredible she's so funny she's so sharp she's just one of the one of the greatest people and um, but she has a very distinctive look she teases she back combs her hair teases it really high she's always got this like sort of defiant little like like white streak in her hair or occasionally has that uh she's got this great like winged eyeliner she just has this like very distinct look and she wears like tights and doc martens this whole thing and i just know like i'm realizing now remembering those videos remember reading this book when i first got hired at vanity fair in 2014 that i felt like as a writer i needed to have like a look oh man but to like distinguish myself and that is definitely a thousand percent why i started dyeing my hair purple why i got glasses that had like thicker rims like all these sort of things i was like i modeled myself on her this is very I felt like dolly wild of you that's what the it's book's about so meta it's exactly <laughs> what the book is about and i was just like and like you know I, I i did that initially and then i just sort of it's not it's not like pretend it's not an act or whatever it's just something like a little extra thing to do to you know give you that extra bit of like fake it till you make it which is a big like theme of of the book fake it till you make it sort of uh feeling because i felt like I don't know how you felt when you got hired at Vanity Fair. When I got hired at Vanity Fair, I was like, this is a huge mistake. And I will. <laughs> they <laughs> will eventually will realize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like counting down, uh, you know, the minutes until I got fired. And, you know, five years later, I'm still here. So like, yeah, but that was that was a that was a coping mechanism that I used. And and hearing her both talk about it in interviews and then, you know, because she she went to an extreme when she was a kid because she's a kid. But she settled back into something that did feel comfortably her. But if you ever look up photos of her, it's so funny. This is something I noticed recently, too. She's often she's she's like a lovely woman, but she's often just pulling like an antic face uh, in a photo. And it feels like this is just also part of her like coping mechanism with the spotlight of she's just sort of like, I'm I'm wild and I'm eccentric and like, you know, this is who I am. And there's so much there's so much of that truth in the book itself. Once again, this is not nonfiction. This is fiction, but it's so obviously like autobiographical that it's uh, it's really sweet to to read about. Yeah, the sense I get is that she kind of like, I mean, there's a lot of like actions that happen in the book that like there's a very you know convenient moment where she learns to like care about music. And like that's, you know, it's probably didn't happen quite like that in real life. And I think her parents are maybe maybe made a little bit more dramatic characters than they were in real life. But yeah, right. I mean, there's just so many things that, you know, the way she writes about like deciding who she wants to be and how she feels about the way she looks and how she feels about like the bands that she's listening to and what music makes her feel like that it feels so very personal. And I mean, it's one of the questions I have about watching a movie version of this is her voice is so essential to what makes this book work. Like, as you said, she's so funny. Like she has such a way of describing things. And I think films can capture a lot of things about these teenage motions and and coming of age, but I wonder what it might lose from not having her voice guiding it. We should say she she co-wrote the script, so like there's yeah, yeah. there's at least her that much of her voice. Of yeah. yeah, but um, the thing that I'm actually worried about is accent because like I don't know if Beanie Feldstein. I'm sure she can. She can do anything, but but like all through this book, I was like, why didn't they cast? A British girl for this, you know. Um, <sighs> I mean, it is uh, it is the the year of Beanie, so like it, it seems anyone who doubts I her love seems Beanie. like they will be like smited in her wake. So, <laughs> but I do I know what you mean. Like, I mean, although who am I? Like, if she has a bad working class British accent, I'm not gonna know. 
I don't know. You're better no, with like, this than I am. I mean, I'll just, I'll just know if it's inconsistent. So, like, the the, the best model that I could think of for this, because it's it's a similar ish. I don't know, situation um, is uh, Renee Zellweger playing Bridget Jones. Like Bridget Jones yeah. is such like an iconically British uh, and it's, it's also in its own like sort of slightly softer, pinker way, like such a feminist tale of self, self acceptance, um, you know? So I, and Helen Fielding, you know, like sh- I think they're, she's friends with Callum and like they're, you know, they're the woman who wrote Bridget Jones diary. So like, it works. I mean, Renee works in that role. She's she's great. So it's yeah. I, I'm just I'm hoping it works. I'm hoping it's incredible. That's all I want for this uh, because yeah. there is a lot. There are a lot of incidences in the book that are very cinematic, and I could see this becoming just like a classic, a classic comedy. I would love that uh, for this. Yeah. And something something that that um, that the author talks about a lot is this idea of. In her interview, she talks about the idea of weaponizing humor as a way to get some messages across. She's like such a passionate feminist, right? And so she cares so much about teaching young, you know, she's a mother of two girls. She cares so much about teaching young women how to accept themselves, how to love themselves, how to fight for their space in the world. And uh, she has this great, I was reading some interviews with her. She has this great quote about why she uses humor for that. She says, everyone's buttocks immediately unclench. People actually listen to what you're saying. Plus the revolution becomes fun again. Uh, <laughs> you know, so that, that like that importance of humor in telling this story and how genuinely laugh out loud funny. Like I was sitting in my kitchen and I like, I don't know if you've ever laughed out loud in a book. You didn't realize that you're doing it until someone else is in the room. And they're like, <laughs> what are you reading? <laughs> so that was my experience I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What are what are some of those funny parts of the book or like scenes that you really feel strongly about seeing in the movie version? I don't know that I feel strongly um, one way or another, but I will say that like there is a sequence where she's basically stuck in a bathtub for um, (laughs) an entire night and copes with that. And uh, that's a that's a fairly charming interlude. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah. I feel like so to maybe talk about getting to the Alfie Allen of it. I feel like the yeah. relationship that she has with this musician named John Kite, who is is a super complicated figure of like this guy in his early twenties who is like not having a sexual relationship with a seventeen year old girl, but is like definitely romancing her in its way and like staying up all night and drinking way too much. Um, so I'm curious about how those edges might get softened or maybe not. Um, but I'd like their the, the intensity of their kind of platonic romance, like the way that they like wander around all night in these cities and kind of like break into a zoo and like go sit by the water, like that stuff is feels so cinematic. And I, it feels like it kind of jumps right off the page and is ready to go into a beautiful montage. It's funny. Cause I was trying to think of like how to successfully execute on screen, uh, these sequences of like someone you meet that you can talk to all night. And I'm like, okay, what does the, you know, can they, capture a you know before sunrise before sunset sort of mm-hmm. feeling of like the walk and talk where you really understand the connection between two people that's that's I think a challenge to capture and I just found myself thinking like okay if I were a filmmaker what films would I look at to try to reference to make sure I got this exactly right because it is an incredibly important part of the book and it's hard it's hard to like the meeting of the minds you know what I mean is yeah. a hard thing to really um make happen on on screen so what how are we feeling about Alfie Alana's romantic hero I mean I I, I know I feel like you are a hundred percent here for it and could not be more here for it I mean you're the one you're the one who messaged me in the first place but <laughs> I, I I mean what's interesting is John kite who's this very interesting figure um I was reading some interview I I googled like who is he based on like is he based on oh, yeah. um, you know an actual rocker uh, that she met in her journalism days and much uh, like Louisa May Alcott talking about who Lori uh, is based on she says he's an amalgamation of like a lot of lovely young boys here like please forgive me again for reading another quote from her but she said uh, like basically she was tired of how rockers were depicted in uh books and film and television as like dumb oafs mm-hmm. uh, and she said he reminded her of the, all the clever self-taught whimsical hilarious boys who you could just while away the afternoon in a pub with smoking and drinking and shooting the breeze about anything so i made john kite out of all those lovely boys he's basically richard burton in a furred coat singing the songs of american music club i know exactly how all his songs sound so like this this creation but the the important thing about it he's larger than life he's like flamboyant that richard burton uh, analogy is is very interesting he's larger than life he's flamboyant he's very loquacious and that is not what i think of when i think of alfie allen who's like <laughs> such uh, a closed off like not closed off but closed in interior actor you know not just as Theon, but in um, like I don't know, I'm even thinking about him in like John Wick, where he plays this like uh, awful uh, gangster kid. Like, you know, he's. But I would love to see him nail this. I would love this for him. This would be fantastic. Um, well, he has this like nerdiness, like this. I, I feel like you need to have someone in this role who's not like the automatic alpha rock star character. Like you can't have yeah. like a Mick Jagger type. He has to be kind of vulnerable and sweet, and someone who like you meet the rock star and you're like, oh, well, you're kind of like you. You would connect to him as a 17 year old who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable in her own skin, and that's what made me kind of excited about it. Like see him as kind of this like slightly uncommon kind of uh, love interest who you can definitely see appealing to a 17 year old girl who's still figuring everything out yeah and we should say he's not the only there's also a figure in the book who i believe i can't get full confirmation on but i believe is being played by stephen delane or 
Frank Delane, who's Stephen Delane's son, who uh, is was on Fear of the Walking Dead and stuff like that. So uh, you know, he's yeah, he's he, the uh, he's I assume he's Tony Rich, the Tony uh, Rich, uh, the other yeah, my my yeah. bad cousin, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the like posh music critic who uh, right. So I mean, a thrust of the later part of the book is that she like you know she takes on the alter ego of Dolly Wilde. She's trying to be like, she's pretending to be the wild girl until she like figures out who she wants to be. And then she has a lot of casual sex with a lot of people. And a lot of the book is about her kind of realizing what she does want. And like, if she wants that to be part of her life. And I, I think it does a really good job of not being like sex shaming, but also, you know, telling young women, as you're saying, is really important to Caitlin Moran, like know what you want, go after what you actually want. Do you think a movie can, can capture as much of that? I, I wonder how it would play on screen. And I, feel like they're going to have to tweak that somehow. You and I were sort of messaging back and forth about like, well, you know, whether, whether or not it could translate that aspect specifically, I think could translate. And the reference movie that I brought up as like what I hope it hits is diary of a teenage girl, which mm-hmm. is a similar sort of sexual exploits of a young woman who in like certain contexts it could be seen as like her just making bad life choices and like shaming. And ultimately it's not, it's very like freeing and empowering for her. And I think, I think you're right that this book tries to watch walk an even trickier line, which is like, there's no shame in it. Like when, when she makes a resolution to sort of like do different things with her life, she does not take uh, tons and tons of sex off the menu for herself. Or tons you know and tons I mean? of drinking, which yeah. <laughs> that was the other part where I was like, girl, you got to <laughs> well, slow it down. Not. She's drinking Mad Dog, which is so disgusting. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, you know, so so it's not like, oh, all that sex I was having was the mistake. The mistake is that she was framing I just thought it was so kind of profound the way that this character, you know, who is like an overweight awkward teen is framing sex as like i'm enjoying this purely because i am making someone else's night better yeah yeah, (laughs) and that is such a relatable thing to like especially like young women first figuring out sex or like uh or maybe you know beyond being young i think that is a thing that we are taught as women and the to see it sort of depicted that way for for in so many different encounters it's just like I, I found it really like shockingly uh, insightful. So um, I don't know how that can be translated without um, that internal monologue running through it. You know? Yeah. We'll yeah. It's a, uh, it's we Like it gets into such complicated issues about like consent being uh, uh, complex. And it, that's, that's the thing that's really hard to show. So it, it does make me wonder if we're going to get some kind of voiceover. Does I Ruby teenage girl have voiceover? I feel like it does. Uh, I think it might. It definitely has those like weird, those interesting like fantasy artistic sequences. Yeah, sort of thing, you know what I mean. That well, that... and and speaking of fantasy, there is someone who's credited on IMDb as playing Emily Bronte. So I don't oh. know where where this film might be going with that. That's interesting. And there's also, as you note, there's roles for Emma Thompson and Jamila Jamil that I cannot really. I don't really see where those characters fit yeah. into the book that we're given. So I don't know if we're getting like a tremendously different book uh, or d- film from the book. Um, there is it some, made me wonder if they're going to be in the music industry somehow, because when she's, she's working for this magazine, that's all men. And I think it's accurate to make it all men and kind of important, but I can imagine there being some like older female. Cause there's not really 
women that she looks up to in the book. Like there's, she's kind of modeling a teenage girl's sense of what a grown up woman would be. And that's part of the process of her learning how to be herself. But right. I can imagine like, God, if you have an Emma Thompson in your life and you're 17, how much better do you turn out I than you could otherwise? Exactly. Um, yeah. It's, it, it'll be interesting. I, I kind of like that. She's the only woman at this. And so she doesn't have, she has to figure it all out for herself. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be interested to see what happens. There's a technique she uses that might be interested to see visualized. And I think it goes away in the back half of the book, but where she, she'll reference uh, a book and then she'll like name the book and the publisher and the publishing yeah. date, Yeah. you know? Um, and so I don't know if like maybe those little references will become sort of externalized authorial figures or something like that because she's yeah. like she's a voracious reader and a voracious consumer of of like film and tv um and that's that's a fun thing i don't know like how alienating it is for you katie who is less obsessive than me about british culture mm-hmm. there's a lot of british tv and film references uh in there yeah you know she's a culture critic for the times uh so it's, it's a lot of me being like i'm aware that blackadder exists so i'm just gonna <laughs> go with you saying this is a relevant thing it's <laughs> um, also other- a lot of like indie pop of the early 90s that I'm like not you know like the fact that she like goes and sees the Smashing Pumpkins at like a tiny club in, in uh, northern England I was like oh yeah okay I, I get the timeline on that but then there's a lot of other stuff where I'm like sure okay that was a yeah. thing <laughs> Um, the other thing that I want to say is that it's interesting the way that it deals with the life of the critic and criticism. And this is something that we, uh, you know, actually, I don't consider myself a film critic, but like, you know, a lot of our friends are film critics and like the, <laughs> the depiction of a, of the critic on screen mm-hmm. and like how they're often vilified because the people writing about them or making them are our screenwriters or directors who have had their feelings hurt by yeah criticism and so the the best example or the most iconic example i think that people hold up is is this character in birdman who like is just this awful critic who talks about you know basically the joys of eviscerating something and i thought this book does a really good job of engaging with that conversation but because it's written by a you know she's a, a former and current critic um she's a, more a columnist and a profiler than she's a critic these days but like you know she's still a critic and and just the, but that idea of like how it's harder harder to write about something you love than score easy hits off something you hate and engaging in that, uh, yeah. I think is 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 really thoughtfully done in the book. I don't know how it will come across on screen, but yeah. but I thought that was like a a thoughtful entry into this conversation where it's not just like critics are evil and they just like bashing things. She's like, yeah, there's pow- there is power in just tearing everything down. And this is very Joe March of her. Is this ultimately what I want to be writing? Mm-hmm. You know, is this what I want to be doing? Yes, Although, the money's nice, but you know. I have to bring out my editor side that there she has this editor figure, Kenny, who I feel like is kind of an underdeveloped character and might be interesting in the movie, but she writes her profile of John Kite that she's been assigned. That's how she meets him. And it's like just basically gushing all over him. And they publish it seemingly without edits and kind of call her out within the story for being like, okay, here you go. You're sounding kind of like a fan. And like, like just edit her story, man. Like don't sell her out in that way. You're not doing your job if you're letting someone publish something and like embarrassing themselves. So she deserves better from her editors. I love that. You're like justice for editorial representation. <laughs> Thank you. Any, anything showing good editors is always on my side. So maybe the movie can, uh, can pick that up, but also it's kind of important to the plot that like she'd be allowed to kind of fall on her ass in that way. So maybe it has to happen. 
I, you know, she's she. Uh, Callum Warren's a much more famous figure in the UK than she is here. Yeah. Um. She, you know, she has this column in the Times. She uh, created a TV series based on her book called Raised by Wolves about like you know growing up impoverished and, and Wolverhampton and stuff like that. But um, I first learned about her actually in this in this profile she wrote of Benedict Cumberbatch, which is this very famous. She famously described him as lavishly wonkily beautiful, 900 feet tall, has a voice like a jaguar hiding in a cello. That's uh, that, <laughs> She's that, such a good writer. I know. Voice like a jaguar hiding in a cello. Uh, it, like Tumblr loved that description, obviously, of Benedict Cumberbatch. And it, 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 you know, it was, came at the beginning of his you know, Sherlock manias when she wrote this profile. And, yeah. um, and I just like, what a like I've always admired that she like perfectly captured that. And she has a bunch of those like one liners, like (laughs) something I could tell in this book is, you know, I'm pretty sure she probably lifted some of her own adolescent writing and put it in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But also like, can you just kind of see her being like, this was really funny, this observation I made, so I'm going to put it in the book. You know what I mean? There's just like these bunch of like sort of self-satisfied witticisms, but like, deservedly self-satisfied you know what I mean because they are very funny so yeah well that's something that I wonder too about the movie is like so many of those lines are what makes the movie so satisfying and I think the story is good like the Johanna is such a great character but the you know the moral of the story is a kind of like be true to yourself and like the the revelation she gets to are not like especially surprising like you, you feel like kind of the comfortable rhythms of the story so I do wonder again like if you have more of her voice stripped out of it just because it's about people and you're not going to have her kind of narrating the entire experience I wonder if the movie can kind of stand up on its own without that yeah that's a good question I mean these are the challenges of adaptation I think this is something we're going to revisit you know in our last two books that we talk about where it's just sort of like you can have the best book in the world um you know which maybe maybe little woman is maybe this isn't um I think even uh, Catelyn Warren might agree with that but like you can have fantastic books and the adaptation process is still so tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my favorite thing to think about and talk about. I mean, like, you know, I, I am probably most well known for talking about game of Thrones. So the reason I'm interested in game of Thrones is it's an adaptation. And so like what you keep and what you leave out is so telling in terms of like what you think the story is versus what I, the reader think the story is, you know? Yeah. And so if this becomes, I mean, we don't have a trailer yet. All we have out there in the world for this film is the cast list, a shot of B.B. Feldstein looking like, um, awkward in bad glasses. uh, She looks like, what is it? Like Mary Margaret, the superstar. Oh, Mary Catherine Gallagher. Yeah. yeah, Mary Catherine Gallagher. (laughs) That's exactly what she looks like. And then you've got, there's a photo of Alfie Allen, like in a fur coat. And, and that's, all we have we don't have a trailer or anything so I, yeah. I don't know like what tone they're going for if this is going to be an out and out comedy I'll, I'm so fascinated to see what they do with it so but but you know as you said up top we don't know when this is going to hit in the US but like it is such a great summer read um, oh yeah please like it's, a, it's such an easy read like oh, so you can fun. blow through it so fast it's really yeah. funny it makes you want to read all of her other columns so yeah it's recommending the book wholeheartedly while wondering what the movie's going to be like <laughs> yeah um, the last thing I want to mention you have sort of a references in your notes as well my copy which I bought in 2014 the hardcover has a pull quote from Lena Dunham on the front mm. in like this little like pink dot and I think it came out uh, around the same time that Lena Dunham's book came out or thereabouts. And 
all subsequent editions have a different uh yeah the one <laughs> i have has a people quote on the yep front. that that little pink dot that has yep. a lena dunham quote on my cover so i feel like the people are like the tide shifted on lena dunham and they're like let's pull that quote off the cover um, <sighs> yeah so it is it it tells you that the the environment has changed in the five years since this was published but it does not make the book any less relevant yeah, I think she's fared better than some, you know, she's compared to Amy Schumer or Chelsea Handler or Lena yeah. Dunham, like a lot of women who have sort of, uh, I don't want to say crash and burn, that's not quite right, but just sort of um, had very bright uh, moments in the spotlight and then kind of inevitably had have to retreat from that. There you go. There you go. So, um, <laughs> you know, read this book. That's all I want to say. Read this book. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that wraps us on How to Build a Girl. Next week, we're going to be talking about The Last Thing He Wanted by Joan Didion, who's uh, you know another extremely prominent female writer, a very different book, which will be fun to get into. Um, so come back and join us for the book club edition of that. Yes, the last thing, sorry, I just do need to shoehorn this in. The last thing I want to say about this book is that Obviously, it has echoes of my favorite film of all time, which is Almost Famous. So if you're an Almost Famous fan and you, you know, you want another story of a, a teen rock critic a little over their head and try to figure out the line between fandom and criticism and all of that, uh, this, is, this is a story for you. Yeah. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Okay, Mike, so let's now go to your interview with Ben Stiller. He came in studio and talked to you. Uh, you guys got into some really interesting deep dives about his own history in television and filmmaking. Uh, what stood out to you about this conversation? Um, well, as you know, he directed Escape at Dannemora. He didn't create it. He was hired by the showrunners to direct. And he did an, a really incredible job. And it's a very different kind of a thing for someone that we obviously all associate with with comedy. Ben Stiller has directed a lot of comedies, including you know, Zoolander and, and beyond and uh, Tropic Thunder. But here he's he's in a much like darker tone. And so it was a cool, interesting choice on the part of the showrunners. He did an incredible job with it. He talked pretty candidly about, you know, the joy and pain of um, of working with really talented actors who have strong ideas about what they're doing. So it's it's a really fun conversation. We yeah, we talked about his long history in TV going back all the way to uh, guest spots on, you know, Kate Nally and Miami Vice. <laughs> I love that his character on Miami Vice was Fast Eddie Felcher. Like what a what a name. What a I Miami know. Vice name. Which he remembered off the top of his head, by the he way. He did. And I and I just think, you know, one thing that was fun is after the conversation, he was like, man, he had just come from Good Morning America where, you know, I think you get 90 seconds uh, to talk before they make, you know, like a batch of brownies or something. Um, and so he was really excited to kind of spend some time talking seriously about about his work and his career. And and I said to him, you know, one of the great things about this podcast, just to shout out our listeners a little bit, is that, you know, our listeners actually care about this stuff. They care about movies. They care about uh, television. They care about awards. They're passionate about all this. So it was just a nice reminder um, of how lucky we are all to do this. And at the very end, I said, oh, I forgot to ask you one question, which is, don't you think that Donald Trump is doing blue steel all the time with his weird, like, purse lips? <laughs> and he said, you know, 
he said, you know, he's obsessed with that movie. He was in the movie, which I had forgotten. And then just as he got on the elevator, he said, and yes, he is doing Blue Steel. So <laughs> that you will not hear that in the interview, but that was maybe my favorite part. But anyway, the rest of it was pretty good, too. Let's take a listen to it now. Well, I'm thrilled to be here in the studio with Ben Stiller, the director of Escape at Dannemora, which has 12 Emmy nominations. Am I right about this? Did we count? I believe correctly? so, yes. Yeah. I love the show. Patricia Arquette has already won the SAG Award, the Golden Globe, for her role. You have already won the DGA Award for your directing. So congratulations already. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a really great experience doing it and having people uh, enjoy watching it. And, you know, it's, it's always it's nice. And you've done TV over the years. You won an Emmy in 1993, <laughs> I believe, for writing uh, The Ben Stiller Show. It's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I don't want to... It's so interesting looking at your IMDb page, which is incredibly impressive in many things, but there's also some amazing and, and gems on especially, there. especially, I'm sure. <laughs> well, you were on Kate and Alley. You, you were on Miami Vice. So so yeah. it's a return to a very different kind of TV. Is that is that fair to say from, yeah. from those days? Yeah, definitely. I mean... Those were all great experiences when I was starting out. And uh, was, I mean, really, actually, I do have great memories of those jobs because it was so exciting to to get a job and to right. you know, have a chance to be in. You know, Miami Vice, I had, I had one scene in it, but it was, you know, like the biggest show on TV. What, so what was your uh, character? Do you I was uh, Fast Eddie Felcher, who uh -huh. was a, an informant. Uh, I sold religious goods, and uh, it was an episode starring Brian Dennehy. And oh, wow. uh, Crockett and Tubbs came and uh, interrogated me and tried to get some information. And Pushed you around down. a little bit? Or, yeah, uh, and yeah. I got my ear pierced for the role because <laughs> I was such a dedicated actor. That's amazing. That's great. No clip-ons here, you know. Uh, no, no, no. Full it was ear all, piercing. yeah. As far as I know, you have an incredible uh, directing career, you know, especially in film, everything from, you know, Reality Bites to Zoolander, Tropic Thunder, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. But you've acted in pretty much everything you've directed. Is this the first time you, you haven't acted in, as you directed? Yeah, I, it, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I directed Cable Guy, the Cable Guy with Jim Carrey 20-something mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. years ago, and I had one uh, one scene, a couple scenes. Did like that. a Hitchcock uh, style. <laughs> yeah, um, but... This is, yeah, this is really the first time I've done that. It's something I've always intended to do, mm -hmm. but it finally happened. And so now that it's finally happened, it's kind of almost strange to me that this is the first time I'm actually doing it. Because <laughs> in my head, I feel like, well, this is what something I've wanted to do and feels very natural in terms of, yeah. you know, what I, I enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, I really, I really do enjoy directing and, um, and, and acting, but uh, this one... The experience was, it really was kind of a revelation for me personally, how much I enjoyed not doing both at the same time. I think there is this sort of ongoing interesting question about film and TV and how different are they now? Are they different at all? Obviously, there's a structural difference if you're making a limited series versus one, you know, 90 minute to two and a half minute arc. But in terms of the production, is it basically, is a show like this basically at film levels in terms of the the budgets and the you know everything that you can call on or are you, or are you doing different tv things that are different from from when you're making a movie well i i, th I mean the reality is the budget is not as big as mm -hmm. it would be for maybe for a movie that you know might do all this uh just as a feature but 
<laughs> also, the reality is that these days movies aren't being made about this kind of subject matter at, right. this, at this level. So actually, yeah. the budget's probably bigger than what you would get. It's probably you know maybe thirty years ago you could have a, a decent budget for a story like this. Right. Um, yep. But these days it would be much harder. So it's really it is the place where you can do it on the level that um, that it that it deserves. I, I love movies. I you know my desire is always to see something up on a big screen. Um, when we had our premiere, we were able to show the first episode at, at Lincoln Center, and it was so exciting to see it up there. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, but then there's something else you get with television, which is the intimacy that the viewer has with it and the accessibility and the connection that grows from week to week with it that mm -hmm. I experienced that I'd never really experienced before. I'm not a huge fan of social media, but that's one of the things I think that's really good about it is that you can feel this connection with the audience on something that's coming out uh, on a weekly basis. So Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about this incredible cast, and, and really uh, not surprising that you guys got nominated for an Emmy for casting with this group. Um, and, and you and Patricia Arquette, you guys go back a ways, right? And, and yeah, yeah. We worked uh, on uh, Flirting with Disaster with yeah. David O. Russell. Amazing film, one of, of my think, faves. Yeah, it was a really fun movie, crazy movie to do yeah. together. And uh, that was a long time ago. That I yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I had worked with Patricia and, you know, we'd stayed in touch over the years, but, you know, not hadn't really seen each other that much. And uh, we both had the same manager, Molly Madden, uh, starting out, and she's just a great person so I've always stayed in touch with her and when we were thinking about who would play Tilly Patricia was really the first person we thought of because yeah. Yeah. Um, you know she just you know she's such a unique and wonderful actress yeah well and, and something that's so interesting about the story and about the character is it's a story ab about something you don't see you know, often and certainly in this context, it's the destructive in some ways power of a middle-aged woman's sexuality and a woman who's not really vain in a lot of the kind of ways that, that you, you know, when you see a sexualized woman on screen, that's not what she looks like. But she's very, you know, she has desires and, you know, they have real consequences. So what was that? Was that a conversation that you guys had? I mean, you know, how did you guys work together to kind of construct this this role in the performance? Um, yeah, I mean, I, that is definitely something we talked about. Uh, yeah, when when you look at uh, the character, you don't think of her as being this person whose sexuality is what she leads with, but uh, the reality was in that uh, environment of her being the, the, the civilian supervisor in this tailor shop, so there's 40 inmates, 40 male inmates that she's overseeing at sewing machines with just one corrections officer in the room and a back room that they can go into, she was definitely, you know, using that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of what the story is is about manipulation, both how the, the prisoners were manipulating her and, and also, I think, how she felt she was manipulating them in terms of yeah. what she wanted. Yeah. Um, and her sexuality was part of that. And, yeah, it's definitely something you don't see a lot in movies or television, a woman of that age um, who's not ne necessarily, um, you know, has this, like, quote-unquote sexy figure. She's, mm -hmm. you know looks like a, a real person who's and, and that was important for Patricia to really uh, embrace that which I, I think you know that's what's one of the amazing things about her as both a person and an actor is that she's willing to just um, do what it takes to portray the character in the most realistic way and then I'm fascinated by this by the relationship between 
you know, the characters portrayed by Paul Dano and Benicio. And I'm wondering, what was their relationship like on, on set? Because it's a, you know, they're sort of partners in crime, uh, literally, but also... You know, Paul Dano is very, his character, very wary of Benicio's character, you know, uh, has real concerns about how he's operating, but Benicio's kind of in charge. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic, and I'm curious, like, what was, what was their working relationship like? Obviously, they're both pros, but I'm, I'm curious how it manifested. Yeah, it, it was very interesting because they're very, very different actors. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think the way they approach the work is very different, and they didn't really know each other before, and... You know, the relationship between these two guys in real life, the characters in in the story, was that they they met in the cell block. They didn't know each other beforehand. And really, the way that they came together was I think they, they both had this mutual uh, desire to escape. Mm-hmm. So that was really the, the one thing that connected them. So they didn't have a lot else in common. And David Sweat, who is uh, Paul's character, had killed a policeman uh, so, sort of impulsively. Richard Matt had uh, killed a couple people and it was more of a what you would call a cold-blooded killer. Mm-hmm. Um, inside the prison, he was very well connected and uh, very comfortable in that prison environment. David Sweat was not. He, he felt he always was um, a target because he had killed a police officer, both from corrections officer and, and also other, other inmates. He, wasn't, he was kind of skinny, so he was always trying to build up his muscle and trying to be, trying to be tougher than he was. So, you know, I think both Paul and, and, and Benicio got into the, the background of their characters and came at it with um, their own personal ideas. And then, you know, and then you just kind of put people together and they're both obviously professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, but they kind of had to figure their way around each other. And mm-hmm. I think that contributed to the relationship on screen yeah. because they were both trying to figure each other out. Mm-hmm. And they also had to spend about seven months together. <laughs> Um, in in tight quarters. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you're figuring out a scene, you know, each actor is going to come with their own point of view. And both both of them are very, you know, specific and thoughtful actors who will break down a scene. And so there can be a lot of discussion about it. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm there trying to just sort of figure out, okay, I know what I see the scene as, um, Benicio has his idea of what he thinks the scene is. Paul has his idea. Usually mm-hmm. actors, being an actor myself, I know you come from the point of view of like, you see the scene from your character's point of view. Sure. Yeah. Which is your job. You know, that's yeah. what you should do. And so it's sometimes it was sort of like going, okay, well, you see it that way and he sees it this way. Yeah. I kind of see it this way. Right. <laughs> and let's, you know, let's see what happens. So, uh, you know, that's, but that's, that's part of the, the process. And, and, you know, Every scene was different that way. So sometimes, sometimes we would kind of all be on the same page, and other times, you know, Benicio would have an idea, and Paul was trying to reconcile it, or vice versa. And I think that tension, which is creative tension, not you know, not yeah. personal tension, is what you know just that that feeds everything. Yeah, you can see there's a there's like an electricity on the screen there. Do you end up shooting multiple? Do you kind of say like we'll try it your way, and then we'll try it his way, and then we'll try it my way? Uh, it depends, you know. I, I think um, it's it's from scene to scene. You know, I don't like to. Yeah, if there's an idea that you know an actor says, "Hey, can we try another one?" Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I'm I'm an actor, so I, I always want to be sensitive to that. And so, you know, it's the only thing that can ever stop you from that. Sometimes is a schedule, you know, taking yeah, too much sure. time. But really, you want an actor to walk away from a scene feeling like they 
explored everything they wanted to yeah. explore. And, um, you know, sometimes there were a couple of times when uh, Benicio or, or, or Paul would have an idea and say, this is how I see it. And then I'd say, well, maybe let's try it this way. And they go, I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty married to that. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then it's like, well, do you want to consider a, a separation right. or maybe a divorce? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, again, that's, uh, that's part of the process. That kind of brings me naturally to a thing I'm dying to ask you about, which is the don't tell anybody moment. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of those, for sure. <laughs> which is one of the greatest things, but it's, it's an insane line reading. I mean, it's fantastic. It <laughs> he just says, don't tell anybody, and holds it to Patricia for like rather a long time. And, and yeah. you do an incredible cutaway to her face. Like, right. what the hell was that? Right. But can you tell us about that and how it came about? Um, yeah. So, I mean, most of these scenes came about from real events that happened that we would either piece together from interviews that, that, you know, that Tilly or David Sweat did with the police or, you know, eyewitness accounts of what happened. But a lot of that stuff that happened in the back room, you know, nobody knows what really happened. Mm -hmm. um, so we just have to go off of, like, as much of the sort of circumstantial evidence of what went on. But we really don't know what was said back there unless Tilly said, this is what he said to me. You know, or David Sweat says, I said this. And a lot of times you don't know if they're also if they're telling the truth. Right. But we felt it was important um, to establish the idea that, uh, you know, that he was telling her that they were going to escape. You know, in that scene, she ba he basically says it's going to be years until they get out because that's what they thought it was going to be because they were just chopping, uh, they were hammering away at this wall. And, uh, and then she sort of dismisses it and... Benicio, I think, felt it was really important. So, so we came up with the idea of this line of him saying, just don't tell anybody, mm -hmm. because he's a little bit concerned that she's not taking it seriously, and all of a sudden they're vulnerable. And I think he felt it was important to scare her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, you know, he came in with that line reading, and, uh, and it definitely was scary. And, I, <laughs> and yeah, that was one where Benicio was married to it. And yeah. as a director, I was like, um, you know, how much of a stand do I want to take here? Right. And, you know, have the option of doing it a different way. And, you know, that one, you know, Benicio stayed married to it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I, didn't have an option. And, you know, sometimes I can be like, to be honest, I can be like an ego thing as a director. They go, well, I have to be able to show him that, you know, I want it this way. Yeah. But I also, you know... You know, if that comes up once or twice during a shoot, during a seven-month shoot, if you have a mutual respect with each other, then it's not a big deal. And yeah. I also appreciated his instinct on it. And yeah. for me, when I saw it, originally that was not the last scene of the episode. Um, there was a scene where they're down in the tunnel, and the, the, this episode was supposed to end with them down in the tunnel after that. But when I saw it, it was such a huge moment. And... For me, I immediately went to Patricia's reaction because it was so weird. And I was like, okay, well, to me, this, this, as crazy as that line reading is, this moment is really about Patricia's reaction to it because that's what he's trying to do is scare yeah. the hell out of her. Yeah. So, and for the first time, she realizes that she's in much deeper than she had yeah. ever imagined. Yeah. So I ended up putting the scene when I saw it at the end of the episode. And yeah. You know, and ending on Patricia, and that to me, it actually ended up. You know, for me, it was you know one of the more important scenes in the show because of that. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about comedy and drama. Obviously, you are one of the you know comedy greats of your of your of, of our time, of your generation, of our time. There's a cliche that it's easier for comedy people to go to drama than the other way around because comedy is so technical. 
it's so kind of hard to get people to laugh, and that drama is something that's a little less technical. Um, do you think that that's true? Do you think that, do you see yourself doing more drama in the future? I think comedy is, it's a thing where, you know, you have a sense of humor. I think you either have a sense of humor or you don't. (laughs) Um, It doesn't mean you're necessarily funny or you're not. But, like, in terms of being an actor, you can sense where something could be funny. I've I've had the experience with dramatic actors who have been really, really good at comedy um, and also dramatic actors who are not great at comedy. Mm -hmm. And I find it's because sometimes they think oh, well, to be funny, I have to do it a certain way or I have to do a certain thing. And I think my feeling of comedy is you're never trying to be funny. You're just trying to be real in a funny situation. Mm-hmm. And if the situation is funny, then the humor will come out of it and you can't try to make it funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I do enjoy doing drama because there's less of an expectation from the audience to laugh because right. that's what <laughs> yeah. now it's wonderful to make an audience laugh and to be in a theater and you know have that experience of you know is to be, and to be a part of it if you're doing something on screen that's making people laugh there's, there's like no better feeling but I, th- um, I think Steve Coogan told me that you know he'll screen a comedy film and like you stand in the back during the screening and if you're not getting whatever it is 2.3 laughs per minute like you gotta go back and recut it right yes, I mean it does yeah. get kind of technical yeah, I mean, I, every movie that I have ever directed has gone through the test screening process. This Escape at Dannemore is the first thing I ever directed that didn't go through any test screenings. Yeah. And uh, the test screening process can be painful, especially with studio movies, because they have a certain criteria of literally a number score that they feel the movie has to get. And right. that, that's what they base their marketing and the amount of money they're going to spend on it and the number of screens they're going to put out. So there's a lot of pressure on that. Yeah. But, you know, it's movies should never be graded like a test. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it is helpful for is to put in front of an audience and see where they're laughing and where they're not laughing. And you know, if you're making a comedy, you want people to be laughing. And, I mean, Coogan, um, you know, he did Stan and Ollie, that yes. movie, and he was yeah. so good in that. And. I think um, Stan Laurel was known for being in the, going in the back of the theater and re-editing, you know, his comedies based on the timing of the laughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, um, that might be how I'm, yeah. I'm slightly mangling, but well, yes. Yeah, but Coogan mm-hmm. is brilliant. I mean, he's yeah. one of the finest people ever, and he is a technician in that way. Mm-hmm. And you, that's your responsibility when you're making a comedy is to do that because you, that's how you want it to work. Yeah. Um, you want the audience to, to have that rhythm and to feel, feel things build and to have, you know, the laughs be as big as they can be. And, you know, just almost like, you know, it's like a piece of music. You want it to work that way. And you grew up. That's your family, right? I mean, your, your, your yes. parents were uh, are legendary comedians, right? Yeah. Jerry and Ann Mira. Yeah. Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira. By the way, your dad, I interviewed him for a, um, a comedy issue of Vanity Fair maybe 15 years ago. And he's the only person in my entire career who sent me a written thank you note afterwards. <laughs> And I felt I needed to tell you that. <laughs> That's, yes, one of the kindest people ever. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the funniest people ever. I mean, you know, that, that, that was part of, yeah, growing up and watching my parents work at that. That's definitely, you know, that was the, that was the goal. Um, though it was always, I think, through, you know, there's always a, a, a grounded human element that you want to be a part of that. I think, I think that actually makes things funnier when people can relate to it and feel like it's something that's real. Yeah. Um, but the great thing about drama is it's very subjective and it's you know you can say i think this is this is working and that's it 
you know, yeah. and if nobody's nobody's going to dispute that, uh, you know, they, they can say, oh, well, I don't or I thought that was indulgent. But really, it's a freedom where you go, this is what feels right to me. Yeah. And uh, I experienced that on, on this and in the editing of this. And it was kind of a, you know, it was a strange experience at first, I have to say, because I realized I had never done this before. I'd never not directed a drama, which I hadn't really, but... I guess I hadn't done that, but the <laughs> experience of not having to put it through that process. Right. So yeah. it would really be more about sitting with it alone or sitting with the editors and going, okay, this, you know, that feels right. I don't know. Is that too long? Is that not too long? I don't know, but it really feels right to me. And maybe showing it to a few friends or showing it to some people in the office and, you know, getting some feedback, but then it's, that's it. You, know? you got to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That does it for this week's episode. Please find us at VanityFair.com where you can find a transcript of the Ben Stiller interview and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the best description of what Richard is up to on his vacation goes to Ben Stiller via Mike. He is doing Blue Steel. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.